Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah, all those details about the marriage course will be in the weekly email this, this week so that you can prepare, prepare well for that. <laughs> prepare well. There we go. So, I am so grateful to be outside today. What an incredible day, right? So, yeah, beautiful. Thank you. you have, if you're going to affirm and talk back to me, you're going to have to speak up because we're a long way away from each other. So, And I have a mic and you don't. Sorry. So I was asked this morning, you know, why congratulations, Sherwood? What exactly does that title stand for? Obviously, it creates questions. It creates a mystery. And that was really the whole point of using that name for uh, these times in the park. And here's exactly where it comes from. Most of you are familiar with a, the Sermon of Jesus that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Hill, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opened that message with these words. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he goes on to use that word blessed are over and over again. And he's speaking in every case to people who are highly disadvantaged, to people who are actually suffering, or people who will suffer. And he uses this word blessed, which for us in our vocabulary doesn't necessarily mean a lot. So another way to translate the word blessed is the word congratulations. So let me read it with that word in mind. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who are mourning, for they will be comforted. Congratulations to the meek, for they will inherit the earth, and so on. And so we want to be out here in the park to tell ourselves and the city of Sherwood, congratulations. Wherever there is lack or need or brokenness in your life, Jesus has come. Congratulations. And so today, as I teach again out of the book of Mark and several other passages, the message I'm bringing is this message of congratulations, Jesus is here. So where are we today? What passage are we in? Let me tell you. I'm going to be starting here in John 16. All right, here we go. This two sentences of Jesus come at the end of a lot of things that he was telling his disciples because the night he shared what John recorded was the last time he was going to be able to assemble his disciples in peace before he went to the cross. So we know these are very important words. And he ended all that he said with these two sentences, actually three sentences. I have told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. Again, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. I'm confident that I don't need to take any time at all to explain what that means, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> For me, in my life of 60-plus years so far, I believe that this last year and a half, two years, I have experienced more trouble in a grand and uh, communal sense than I ever have in my lifetime. Now, granted, I'm just young enough to miss a couple of giant wars and a huge depression, 
So I wasn't a part of that reality. But, and I think many of you would say the same thing, this last couple of years has been amazingly troublesome. And not only in one way or another, obviously the pandemic has been a central reality for us, but what about all the other waves? I think some of us have had conversations about feeling like it's, there are plagues that are coming wave on wave on wave, one plague after the other. You know, are we in plague seven now? Are we in plague eight now? Like, what's going on? And this is what Jesus talked about. In this world, you will have trouble. And I've noticed a pattern, I'm sure you have as well, but one of the great patterns in the, the series of troubles that we've been experiencing in the last couple of years are very oppressive. And they're oppressive on large scales. They're not just personal, but they're communal, and they're national, and they're international. But there are these waves of oppression. Even before the pandemic started, we had this uh, awareness, this high surgence of communication around the oppression that has happened to women in this country and in this society, particularly in the entertainment industry, and it's been going on for decades. But it's a kind of oppression, and that has surfaced. And so even though it's been present, the conversation hasn't been national like it became a couple of years ago. And so that began to weigh on us, this wave of oppression. And then as we were told about it, and we looked around, we realized, yeah, it wasn't just limited to the entertainment industry. But there's so many different places where there is a long and severe oppression of females in so many places. And that hasn't yet changed either. The next wave that I recognized was, that, was the pandemic. And this was just physical oppression, disease. And we know there's a possibility that this was a human-created reality. So again, just oppression perhaps over carelessness and arrogance in the place of medicine, maybe, maybe not, maybe it's natural. But then the next thing we became aware of through, uh, through George Floyd was just to be reminded again that after an incredible civil war and after a new set of laws and after a lot of hard work and suffering in the 60s and 70s, here in America, we still have a tremendously hard time loving people of color well, as a nation and as a society. There still continues to be a clear oppression of people of color. And I got a little selfish as I was thinking this through. Um, this doesn't compare in any way to the sufferings that I just talked about, but I'm one year away from paying off a 32-year mortgage right? <laughs> 32 years is an awkward number, and you know it's 32 because of refinancing. With six children, uh, we refinanced a few times. But I was just, I'm excited on the one hand, but on the other hand, I realize I have a, I have a lot of, um, like, this is a big deal, and I realize the kind of oppression that it's been for 32 years to owe so much money, and to know that about half of it was interest charged to me for the loan for my house. And I think about, you know, uh, God said in the Old Testament, hey, don't charge one another interest. You're going to be tempted to do it, and it's not a good thing. And we in America have certainly made an art of charging interest. The whole reality of amortization and the way that things multiply, the fact that you pay so much interest up front and then only later begin to really pay down your loan. For me, after so many years of working so hard, there's a little bit of an angst there. 
Uh, and then to know what happened in 2008, which challenged many of our businesses and our livelihoods. I was a bricklayer when 2008 was a reality, and I was working for a lot of high-end homes, and it finally reached a great level of income. And my business had to change, and I had to do repairs for several years after that, which paid less, they were a lot harder work, and to later discover what had happened in the banking industry, and just the tremendous burden that was put on the world by greed and selfishness. So I just add that in as a personal experience. I'm in no way comparing it to the depth and the suffering of women and people of color in our world. But what I'm saying is it touches all of us. So when I read, in this world, you will have trouble, I don't need an explanation of what that means. I get it. In this world, you will have trouble. One of the hard realities that is in all of these stories is that most of this oppression is caused human to human. And most of this oppression is done by those who have authority or power or resource choosing not to love society well and to use those resources in a benevolent way, but actually to use them in a fairly self-serving way. And we realize this is just human nature. There's a proverb, not a biblical proverb, that says, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Who among humans can handle the advantage of power and wealth and kind of being able to tell people what they can and can't do? Who can handle it well? And the sense I'm getting is not very many, not very many. Even look globally at the nations of the world and the history of the nations of the world. Wherever people are in power, there's this tremendous temptation to take advantage of that and to create a wonderful life for myself and actually quite a difficult life for others. In this world, you will have trouble. The other thing that has risen in the last couple of years, and in some ways it kind of feels good, is a little bit of a rebellion against this reality. It's, an, it's a rebellion against the oppressed. And so more than ever before, I think especially because of social media platforms, we can now say something about it. And we can now have a platform. And we can begin to, in a way, kind of fight back. I don't know if you remember in A Bug's Life, but the grasshoppers were oppressing the ants. The ants did all the work and the grasshoppers were in charge. And one of the grasshoppers said, if the ants figure out how outnumbered we are and how strong they are, we're going to be in trouble. And it feels as though there's a little bit of that in the air right now among the masses, this loud voice against oppression and saying, this needs to change, this isn't right, this isn't fair. And of course, everyone has a platform through social media. The solutions that we offer in our culture, apart from the gospel, to me are terrifying. And they are completely ineffective. Throughout human history, this has been a reality, that the haves tend to be selfish and tend to oppress the have-nots, whatever the have is and whatever the have-not is. And then the meek and mild who are altruistic rise to power and they become the haves believing that they're going to do it differently and they don't because they get it they understand wow i have so much advantage right here i could do so much with this advantage 
And so our hope is to constantly reframe the story that we're in. Mainly, we like to turn over in governments or in the way we run our business or in how we do things. But to be honest, a good, deep historical look will tell you none of that has really worked very well. There is some success, and democracy is a place where things can be a whole lot better than in heavy dictatorships, for sure. But if you look at it, and you look at things like pharmacy, and real estate, potentially, and banking, potentially, there's still oppression in our society based on the form of government we have. Is there hope to constantly reframe leadership, to pull people out of leadership and put other people in leadership? Will the next leader be any better? The other hope is a change in education. If we were just educated, people wouldn't be the way they were if they knew better. If they were told the story, if they understood the ramifications of their actions and how other people are suffering. And yet that high awareness has come, and in many ways it makes no difference. And so on the one hand, I am grateful for the awareness that is in our society today around how inhumane humans can be that we are wanting to stand up against these things and we want to see these things change, the changes that are being offered are powerless. And the changes that are being offered have not worked for millennia. Why will they work today? In this world, you will have trouble. Not long ago, I began to think about this. You look at the scrutiny that leaders are under right now even as something as simple as playing the host of Jeopardy. This gentleman loves to be in a position like this. He seems qualified and he comes to it. And within a few days, we do a research of his history. And big surprise, we find he's not a completely loving and humane human. And this happens over and over again. Politicians come in. They're asking for power. They're asking to be elected. We dig into their histories. And what do we find? There are moments in their life that they probably deeply regret and moments that they can be judged and condemned for. And for these reasons, our societal solution is disqualified, disqualified, disqualified. The question I have is what human in this country would survive that scrutiny? If we walked through the history of each one of our lives and we took the time to research every conversation we had in every setting and every action we ever did, is there anyone, is there anyone here in this lovely, sweet little church who could say, I'm worthy to lead? I would be worthy to take these positions because I am not like those people. I have not done those things. And I just keep waiting as we go from leader to leader to leader to leader, where will it ever stop? Because we must realize no one will fit the bill of perfection. No one will be free from unkind or even downright mean and oppressive language or actions throughout the entirety of their life. In this world, you will have trouble. Where does it end? Well, here's what Jesus said in Mark 7. And he was speaking to some people who were pretty confident that they were worthy to lead and that they were leading righteous lives. And in fact, they had a standard and they believed that they were meeting that standard well. And this is what he said. He said, for it is from within, 
out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. I'll read it again. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these evils come from inside and defile a person from inside. The breakdown in obliterating oppression is not out there. The rescue from oppression, from human oppression in every form, is in here. It's in here. It's in the heart, according to Jesus. But remember the rest of the statement that I just read from John 16 at the top. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What Jesus' disciples and what the Jewish people were looking for was for Jesus to change things out there. To, ch to get them free from the Roman government. To take care of what's going on out there. To take care of what's happening among tax collectors out there. And the tremendously unforeseen and difficult word of Jesus was... I have to start in here. I have to start in here. Even when Jesus was ready to ascend back into heaven, the disciples asked, what about out there? Is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom and pull down the oppression and set us free? And he said, no, it's not, because I have come to take care of in here. And until in here changes, there is no hope for out there. And for me, these words leave me silent because I don't know how to change in here. But Paul puts it so well. And then Eugene Peterson nuanced it even better. So I want to read for you from Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, from Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase called The Message. Since we've compiled this long and scary record as sinners, both others and ourselves and have proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God's will has for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. Congratulations, Sherwood, Votes, Golders. There's an answer for the brokenness in here. There's an answer for the hopelessness of me ever really being able to be the husband and father I thought I would be. As a teenager, the only thing I really wanted, sorry guys, I might be alone in this, I'm a little awkward, I get it. But the only aspiration I had was to be a husband and a father. I had such a great model in my family of a mother and a father and such a, an incredible experience of family. It's all I ever wanted. And I was pretty confident I was going to kill it. <laughs> I was going to be an amazing father because I had seen and read about what's not good and what is good. And I had Jesus in my life and I knew I was going to kill it. And I knew as a parent I was going to be awesome. 
and you can hear the sarcasm, and you know the truth, I was okay. <laughs> I am okay. But at times, I've actually been oppressive. It's actually been oppressive at times to be my wife. Don't ask Tricia, just take my word for it. And at times, it's been very difficult to be my children because the problem lies inside. And so this word that Jesus shared is a deeply personal one, but it's also a global one. That if we are going to be a part of a movement and a revolution that truly has any sense of hope for change and for transformation, it has to be a revolution of transformation inside the human heart. That is our only hope. We can put people in power and then wait until there's enough time for them to blow it, which doesn't take very long. Or there's enough time to research their history and find out that in the past they blew it and there's no forgiveness for that. But we will go through every human on the planet ultimately and never have hope of leadership. And this is the absolute beauty of Jesus Christ. He brings hope in two ways. First of all, he proclaims a future where we're actually free from the oppression of human brokenness. He declares a kingdom, a government, a way of leading that is in complete benevolence and complete power because Jesus alone can fulfill the role of leadership with an unstained record and a perfect heart. That's just who Jesus is. So that is the future. But that's not the only hope that we had. And I have to tell you, when I was young and growing up in the church I was in, I thought that was the only hope. And I kind of waited around, you know, to die <laughs> for that hope to be realized. And I didn't wait around to die. I lived. But then I began to learn more and more. And this message is one we need to bring to especially our children and a new generation is that Jesus brings hope for change now. Jesus brings hope for change now. The change he hoped that he brings for now is not one of perfection. As a Christian husband and a Christian father, having Christ in my life and studying the scriptures and being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean I'm going to be flawless from now on. Is that a relief to anyone? I guess you already knew that, right? You already knew that. I knew that, Rick. <laughs> so where's the hope? The hope is in forgiveness, something that our society is rejecting right now. I heard these words from our president this last week, we will not forgive and we will not forget. Now, in the context they were spoken, perhaps they were appropriate, or in the short term, perhaps they were the needed words. But from a standpoint of humanity, who has any hope at all if we declare no forgiveness and we declare no, no uh, forgetting? And again, I'm not speaking of the reality of what happened or whether it's good or bad. I'm not making a political statement. I'm not saying there shouldn't be retribution for what happened. I'm not speaking into that at all. But I'm speaking into this reality that um, a lack of forgiveness and a lack of forgetfulness leads to utter hopelessness in relationships. And so I wrap up with these words. Congratulations to you. Congratulations to your family. Jesus has come to make a change. We imagine incredible relationships and incredible community, and it will come. A day is coming, thank God, when we will be free 
from the corruption that still remains within the human heart. Jesus will set us free. We will be resurrected to a new life that is sin-free and that is full of love and flawlessness. But in the meantime, we also have something called forgiveness. We have something called grace. We have something called patience and kindness. And this is our hope in this world. And if you feel like, hey, Rick, I appreciate the words, but for me, all those things are settled and I'm good, then let me call you to be a leader and a witness to others around you remotely or around you broadly to bring this message of hope. Because right now and forever, the world does not have hope. The constant change they seek, the constant education that they think will change things, the constant uprooting and reestablishing of new leaders or new kinds of governments has no lasting hope. The only lasting hope is change within the human heart. And this is what Jesus has come to give. Take heart. I have overcome the world out there, and I have overcome the world in here. Let us pray. Father, we are eternally grateful and deeply grateful that you have supplied hope. You have given us the answer. And we have certainly proven to ourselves that without you, we are without hope. Jesus, we thank you for your tremendous example of love and patience and kindness in the presence of broken people. And we thank you that you were obedient to the Father to take care of all of the brokenness and all of the sin, that you were willing to die for us. And though we would want others to die for what they've done, or we might even feel deep inside that we wish we would die for what we have done, you died instead, and you set us free from that just punishment of death. So thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for that. And we ask you, Jesus, as we continue to live in this world, and as we continue to be faced with trouble, we pray for renewed hearts. Jesus, I pray that among us as a congregation, you would renew our hearts. You would give us the strength and the confidence to call people, first ourselves, then our families, but then others, to forgiveness and to reconciliation. That you would give us soft hearts so that we would repent and we would turn from what we're doing and we would turn away from the oppression that we cause in our lives and the lives of people around us and we would become messengers of a new kingdom and of a new way. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you as a church, as individuals, and as families to be a part of revolution, of transformation, deep inside. Come, Lord Jesus, change us, and lead us to lead others to change, we pray in your name. Amen.